I always believed that right wins and that if you just treat people fairly and keep your head down and do what's right. And, you know, I had at one point 500 lawsuits. Can you imagine that? 500 lawsuits at one point. At one time? Yeah, at one time. (laughs) Your legacy is your brand, what you're building. We want to inspire a generation of entrepreneurs to fearlessly create things that matter with a community that supports, motivates, and guides them towards victory as they take on the giants standing in their way. This is the Battle Ready Brands Podcast. The economy is constantly changing. Today's brands need a battle strategy that is tested and proven to help them win. Suit up. It's time to get battle ready. And here are your hosts, Matt Kretzman and Brad Parnell. Craig Hall. Man, a man what, of many talents. Yes, just what a what a what a cool story. I mean, we were talking about how this could easily be like ten podcasts. Oh yeah. So we we bounced around yeah. a lot just because there's so much to to yeah. unpack here. Yeah, there's a lot. Um, I mean, even in us giving you his his bio and introduction of what he does. I mean, Craig, he's he's the founder of Dallas based Hall Group. Uh, he's been in entrepreneurship for fifty years. Um, he's gone bankrupt, built everything back uh, there. And again, he's won many lifetime achievement awards and on awards. I mean, Hall of Fame. Yeah, Hall of NHL hockey player, NFL Super Bowl winning champion. Not quite. <laughs> but he could be. He probably <laughs> could be if he wanted to. But re- real estate Hall of Fame. He was re- inducted yes. into the best. But yeah, all kinds of Hall of Fames. Yeah, non sports he does do CrossFit. He does do CrossFit. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, super, super nice guy. So we're, we're fortunate to have him on the show. Yeah. Um, we reviewed some of his new book called Boom, Bridging the Opportunity Gap to Reignite Startups. Yeah. And I think you guys are really going to enjoy this episode. So I would I would take some notes here. I mean, this guy, I mean, 50 years yeah. as an entrepreneur, yeah. has been through extreme ups and downs, like stuff that our mouths were probably open during some of his stories. Totally. Mesmerized. Like, didn't even know what to say. Yeah. I mean, just the, just the extremities are unfathomable. Yeah. Insane. Yeah. Yeah. So, you, I mean, you're going to have to listen to the whole episode really absorb a little bit of what Craig's been through. But, I mean, if I could sit down with anybody, you know, top five in the world, I, I think he would be one of the people that I would want to sit down beside oh. and just soak it all in. Easy. Well, thanks uh, for joining us, everybody, on this next edition of the Battle Ready Brands podcast, fueling brands to endure. Brad, I'm super excited. We have a special guest today, Craig Hall, a Dallas-based entrepreneur with 50 years of experience and a lot of horror stories to go along with that. So yes. I'm excited. Yeah, we're, we're very excited to have you on. Um, you know, great, great book. You guys need to go out and get it. We'll ask some questions from this book called Boom, Bridging yes. the Opportunity Gap to reignite startups um amazing book so thanks craig for being on the show today my pleasure great to be with you good well let's 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 jump right in um i'm curious to know uh first off the bat i heard a rumor that uh that you like crossfit is that true uh absolutely i, I mean i look like it but uh yeah <laughs> I, I i love crossfit what although no, I, I heard i heard that they're actually uh changing it to make it for uh more older person friendly, so I may not do it anymore. But <laughs> oh yeah, no. older person, I don't want to hang out with older people. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, anytime you can come to the gym with Brad and I, um, cool. and maybe run some Spartan races with us. Yeah, Spartan races are the new CrossFit. So, so. <laughs> yeah, it's not that bad. One, yeah, one, once you get through the barbed wire and the flaming jump, it's it's super easy after that. Oh, <laughs> yeah, and the flames aren't that high. They're pretty easy to make over the flames. Sounds easy compared to being an entrepreneur. Who, right? <laughs> that's, right. That, that's the break. That's the, the little tea time you get as an entrepreneur to, to go and relax from it. Yeah. So are we going to see you at the CrossFit National Championship anytime soon? Not likely. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, there's, there's, there's parallels I'm sure you've found between working out, entrepreneurship, um, startups, you know, working out, building those nice big muscles. Um, muscles, I'm sure you've got some too. But could you talk about like maybe what what it's like for 50 years to go back and stay in the fight and continue to, to train and work hard at it? What what have you seen over the last 50 years? 
Well, first of all, I would say it's all about surviving until you thrive. And, you know, we, um, we're a lot of the time being an entrepreneur is about being in the survival business first and foremost. And, uh, it's about, uh, keeping the wolves all off the door sometimes who, uh, you know, cash and cash flow. I learned long ago that if you run out of money, you got a deep problem. And, uh, your your creditors uh, aren't happy about that. So I've I've been, I've been to that movie too many times, and I'm not going back. So now I keep lots of extra cash hanging around. Yeah, that's good. It's funny. It's funny. We hear that quite a bit. It's like once you've once you've been there, like you know, close to bankruptcy, you're gone through bankruptcy. Sometimes that's that moment where you know you've you've tasted that and you've seen what it could do to you and or your family, and it's just this like grit of I am never going back there again. At at all costs, I'm going to protect myself from that. Did you, have you experienced something like that where you had like a, a pivotal moment of change? Well, absolutely. And uh, not only in, in my businesses, I do a lot of uh, borrowing from banks and banks don't want to loan anyone money if they need it. They only want to loan it to you if you don't need it. So if you keep a lot of cash around and you're real strong so that you uh, can be a good cre- uh, creditor, a good, good uh, debt for a bank, that's a, a thing that's helpful as well. So yeah, in my younger days, uh, I certainly um, learned a lot of hard lessons. If, if we could back up for a moment, I, I want to go back to those younger days. Um, I think sometimes we mischaracterize, you know, big business giants like yourself and think, oh, they, they came from, you know, a family that was well-to-do or successful, or maybe they're just brilliant or, or you know, they're, they're like almost like demigods that fall down from the sky. You know, and and it sometimes we just have that misperception. Can you go back to your early days? What was what was it like for you um, in your family, or what were your what were your parents like? Sure, I'm happy to do that. And, and let me first of all say, I totally agree with you. I think a lot of people uh, have a misconception today because there there are a handful of people who maybe make money an easier way than others and invent some idea that works. But those are such the exception. The the, the truth is that it's a, it, it, there are tough times and most entrepreneurs go through them. I started when I was uh, 17, I decided I wanted to buy a rooming house uh, in Ann Arbor, Michigan, because there were fights between the tenants uh, who were students at the university and landlords who owned the properties. And I thought I could um, jump in there and uh, be a good guy landlord and, and uh, make a uh, fair profit and move on. And I actually had no plan to be an entrepreneur or no plan to stay in it. But I, when I bought my first rooming house, I found it to be super fun, liberating because I can't control my own uh, life. And even though I had to work a full-time job to pay for my negative cash flow and I was losing money, I was having fun. So then I bought a second place, but I had no money to buy the second place. So I raised money from students at $200 per investor. That's pretty and great. Yeah, it was fun. It was pretty cool. <laughs> and and uh, I raised three thousand dollars on my as a down payment for my second second uh, building. And I even remember addresses. It was seven twenty seven Oakland, three three apartment units, uh, old house. I mean, you know, that was fifty one years ago. Uh, <laughs> I remember it like today. And um, you know, it's been a great ride. I, I've had a lot of ups and downs, some serious big big downs, which happy to talk about. Uh, the early days were always struggle. Uh, then, you know, I was struggle for a long, long time. The last, uh, few years have been, uh, pleasurably not so much struggle, but, uh, uh, there's always ups and downs. Even, even when you, uh, have turned the corner, uh, in a big way, but, but it's all about surviving and it's all about hanging in there until you thrive. And sometimes you thrive because of things that you put yourself in the position to get lucky, but really luck plays a role, a big role. Mm. Yeah, it seems like, you know, as, as we've, you know, read a lot of things about you and have, you know, kind of watched some of the risks that you took were staggering. Um, and, and that's what it, it means to be an entrepreneur is to take risks. But I think you've set the bar extremely high <laughs> for, for some of the risks that you've taken. You know, what I mean, what what are some of those risks that you made early on that maybe built some of that risk muscle in you in those early days? Well, I guess, uh, you know, I, I, I took a lot of risks that, and still enjoy. I'm a, I am a consummate risk taker. Today, maybe a little more uh, 
seasoned and a little more thoughtful. But uh, yeah. when I was 24 years old, I went in to uh, uh, visit a guy who was 79 and I, uh, his property wasn't for sale, but uh, I found out, I knew it was pretty vacant. It was 56% occupied. It was an 1145 unit apartment project on a, on a lake with a golf course, beautiful property. Uh, and I knew it was in financial trouble. I didn't know how much, but when I found out uh, over a period of time, I talked him into selling it to me down and cause I had no money, uh, and $25 million. Um, but I signed uh, some notes and I took some risks and I jumped in there. He took some risks too. Uh, but ultimately I kept him out of bankruptcy and I made the deal work. Uh, so got lucky, but you had to, there are things that I did in my younger days that I probably would know too much and not do today. One of the best things is to be an entrepreneur when you're younger, because you're not smart enough to know what you shouldn't do. And, and that helped seriously. So I think it's a, I think it's a, you know, sometimes when you uh, go to school and you get lots of degrees, you learn all the things you shouldn't do. And that makes it harder to start things and learn the, 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 through just trial and error, which I think is a better approach. Hey, my friends. So if you're a business owner, entrepreneur, one of the hardest things to do is to generate leads. I mean, there's going to networking events, there's you know running your own Facebook ads, there's doing all of this work to try to get people. And here's the secret truth, is only 3% of all people are ready to buy today. And that's usually what we only focus on. So we've created a free resource called the Sales Volcano of everything that's beneath the 3% and actually how to talk to those people, how to warm them up. And we've created a free PDF for you to download so you can start using that today to help blow up your leads and sales. So go to 90dayvolcano.com or just click this link below and we're gonna give that to you for absolutely free. So 90 Day Volcano, enjoy it. Peace. So at the age of 18, you put $4,000 into that first rental house. At what point did you... At what point did you realize, like, hey, I like this and this works and saw the potential for something greater? Well, before that, the first thing I realized is, oh, my gosh, the seller lied to me. The uh, first floor tenant that I thought I could lease for $450 a month has a one-year obligation at $70 a month. So I started finding out I was upside down, and I ended up in my first lawsuit when I was 18 suing the the seller and um i don't know it was all fun and i tell you what <laughs> cleaning a bathroom in a rooming house with uh uh students uh, from uh various uh international countries that that cook food that smells quite unusual and, yep, yep. <laughs> and cleaning the bathroom and, and cleaning the kitchen of of eight different uh student uh, kids and their friends that wasn't the most fun but despite all that, I just, I just love the fact that I owned something, I controlled something, it was mine, and it was my business. And I had a, uh, a freedom, and, a, and, a, and I felt like it was part of the American dream and part of, um, you know, that was, I put everything I had into that one old rooming house. Mm. Never looked back. Mm. Do you think maybe those, the, those early investments and those early risks – you know, were you thinking of those years, decades later when you, for instance, you know, uh, built two skyscrapers in downtown Dallas when nobody was touching those at the time? <laughs> well, um, I guess uh, my person, I, I, let's put it this way. I don't think people fundamentally change. Uh, hopefully we get a little um, wiser and smarter in how we do things. But, uh, you know, I don't know where it came from, whether it's uh uh, it, it didn't come directly from my parents because my my parents were actually pretty conservative. But I I had a risk taking uh, disposition from an early point, and um, uh, always wanted to do kind of unusual big deals. And it's and yet compared to I wish I was uh, doing uh, scalable huge. Silicon Valley things right now, but, uh, I, you know, you can't do everything. I don't have regrets. I, I well, I should have, I, I shouldn't say that I do have regrets, <laughs> but, but overall, let me put it this way. Overall, I'm a very, very grateful person. I think I've had a good run and I, 
I'm not done. I've, I've got more to go, but uh, it's been mm. great. I love it. Spoken like a true entrepreneur. I feel Absolutely. like I feel like it's hard once you've tasted that and experienced that. I mean, you're, that's just kind of like the trajectory for the rest of your life. It's hard to go back once you've once you've been in a few of those those stories. So, mm-hmm. like Matt mentioned earlier, this first season we're putting a special emphasis on these horror stories, and the goal is not to scare anyone away. Uh, but really so our tribe can hopefully learn from mistakes that have been made. And, and just, just like you mentioned, like you've got a lot of them, we all have a lot of them, but I was curious if you have any, you know, like investment stories or failed business stories that you'd be comfortable sharing with our tribe that maybe they can take a, a business lesson or life lesson away from that. Sure. Happy to, I'm, I'm comfortable sharing anything. I I'm, I'm pretty open book. Good. So <laughs> I, I a couple come to mind, but let, let me start with uh, an early one. In the mid-1970s, so that goes back a long way, um, someone approached me, and uh, one thing led to another, and we built a, uh, a racquetball club. It was, uh, at the time, a real hot uh, phenomenon, and it was uh, you rent courts by the hour, and um, it had some athletic uh exercise uh, space in the locker rooms, but it was basically about running the courts to play racquetball. And um, the question was, is racquetball going to be a fad and burn out or, you know, is it there to stay? And mm-hmm. as a 25 uh, year old, I convinced myself it was there to stay. We built two or three of them and they were doing pretty well. And then a friend of mine uh, and I went to, had this wild idea. We sat down and we said, in order to scale this business, we need a partner that puts money in and we need a brand. So you guys are about brands. So we, we said, we made a list of 75 companies we could partner with and, and use their brand. And so we thought, well, the number one on our list was sports illustrated magazine. And if we, if we could illustrate magazine to give us their name, and to give us a million dollars or something, it would give us credibility and we could start growing faster and we could borrow more money. And you were 25 at the time. Yep. <laughs> and and um, so Sports Illustrated Magazine uh, is owned by Time Incorporated. Time Incorporated is this big company in New York, owned Time Magazine and all kinds of other stuff. Guess what? We called them. It's hard to believe. I, even I today, I can't. I, to make a long story short, within 90 days, we talked them into licensing us the name Sports Illustrated, and we call it Sports Illustrated Court Clubs. They gave us a million dollars for 28% of the company. The company really didn't have anything. I mean, it was just, wow. You know, they no. gave us a million dollars for 28% of the company. And then we started to grow. And we were the largest owner of racquetball clubs. Then we figured out it was a fad and it was a lousy business and they all started to go broke. <laughs> all went broke and time incorporated came to us and they paid us to take back their name. Cause they didn't want to be embarrassed by being part of it. So, so oh, wow. man. they paid us four and a half or $5 million. I should have gotten more uh, to, to take, <laughs> to cancel the license agreement. And they, and they gave us back their stock. And, and then uh, we, we had the, uh, unwind it which was not easy it was a mess uh but anyway that was that one you didn't you weren't featured in a sports illustrated magazine cover or anything no i lost my shot i when you know when i was their partner for a while i got all kinds of fun things like you know go to the super bowl and sit at a fancy box get invited to parties it was it was a it was a great uh, gig but it uh, it ran its course pretty pretty fast about three and a half four year up and down Wow. So, so Craig, is, is, is racquetball coming back? Is that going to be if uh, I, I got to say, one of the lessons is single-use buildings are not a good idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we, one of our businesses today, uh, we, we make loans and we build a, we're actually largest uh, non-bank construction lender in the country for hotels. Wow. Mm-hmm. When, when somebody brings in a, a, a an odd single-use uh, thing, I remember my racquetball days and I say, no, quickly. <laughs> <laughs> That's a knee jerk reaction. You right. <laughs> do learn lessons that there that you learn, you learn things in tough times and in good times you think you're smart. Well, that's really a bad mistake where none of us are that smart. So the good times we should just, you know, 
take them and roll on and the bad times learn to not do the same thing over again. Hey guys, so if you're wanting to grow your business online, you need an online sales funnel that converts visitors into leads and then into customers without having to be an expert digital marketer or techno geek. You know, ClickFunnels has helped us grow our business and our clients' businesses too. And that's how 95,000 other entrepreneurs are building their business online. Today, over $4 billion has been processed through ClickFunnels and you need to get, you need to get a piece of that action. Yeah, that's right. So we're giving away a 14-day free trial so you can actually start building funnels for your brand. All you have to do is go to click.battlereadybrands.com. That's click.battlereadybrands.com. Yeah, you, you mentioned, I mean, brands. I mean, this is the Battle Ready Brands podcast. So, I mean, what was going through your head when you were 25 and you're walking up to time? Um, what, what were you, what were you, strategically, what were you thinking as you were looking at the opportunity in borrowing, I guess, trust from a well-recognized brand? What are some lessons there that maybe entrepreneurs today can think about? Well, I, I think that, first of all, I had a friend and, and he and I um, were, were having this brainstorming thing one weekend. And I, I give him a lot of credit for uh, the ideas, but, but I think the idea that we were trying to do was, was gain um, the benefit of their, their name and reputation. And um, mm -hmm. by the way, later I learned that it was the first time that they had done that. Uh, and they told me uh, toward the end that it would be the last time. So, <laughs> so there are lessons learned on both sides. <laughs> that's right. I think they got out of the, no more Sports Illustrated licensing the magazine name. Uh, but anyway, um, I, you know, it was, the idea was sound in, in terms of the, the taking somebody else's brand and using it in a partnership. I still uh, try to do that. And I like that as a, I haven't done enough of it, frankly, but it's, mm. it, um, it, it's just, it's also uh, a really good idea to have a fundamentally workable business. <laughs> Having a business that didn't work was a bad idea. <laughs> it wouldn't matter what you called it. It just, the, by, by having a, a great brand, we grew faster. So we had a bigger downfall, mm. but ultimately um, all, pretty much all racquetball clubs, all of the United States went broke. So wow. we were part of a, part of a big package. Yeah, yeah, that's too bad. So, I mean, maybe for fun, we, we could we could approach time and ask them if they'd be interested in a racquetball sponsorship, just to see if there's any, yeah. like, you know, left <laughs> feelings if they remember any of that past story. Yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, do you think you can lend us the money? <laughs> Good luck. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It, it, it kind of reminds me, you know, like the, the think and grow rich concept too, like, you know, just this, this you've had to have this mental toughness and this belief and this persistence to go in and really just believe like, this is what I want and I'm going to be persistent. And that's kind of the interesting theme I, I pick up from you, Craig, of like you have your eyes set on something and you work for, what do you say, like 60 or 90 days with time to get them to say yes. It was, it was really fast. It was amazing. Yes. And um, I, my biggest, I literally thought long and hard about whether or not I could afford the coach ticket to go from Detroit to New York because I didn't want to invest uh, like $300 in this idea. Wow. I thought, I thought, Man, this is like a waste of money. And then when I went to New York and I saw that big building scared the everything out of me. I mean, like, <laughs> uh, wow. This is just whew, big time. Yeah. Uh, you know, totally frightening, totally uh, intimidating. So oh, well, this sounds like a great, a great. Uh, yeah. How is there not a Craig Hall yeah, documentary series or, or movie yet? <laughs> Not happening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, funny though, I'm, I'm curious because I think you touched on something that is important to distinguish that I don't know a lot of, a lot of entrepreneurs, I, I'm sure most people listening to our show um, know the difference between a business and a brand. And you can have a brand without a business. Can you have a business without a brand? Talk to us about how those two interplay and maybe how you've built your own brand alongside your business. Well, I, I think that um, you can have a business that, doesn't have a, a brand in any kind of traditional sense, particularly a non-consumer facing business. That said, I think we kind of develop a persona as a business, a personality similar to uh, what we are as individuals. And I mean, if your uh, personality, if your reputation becomes your brand, and if your reputation is that you're quality and you're honest and you have good integrity, 
that that becomes a brand, even if it's a business to business uh, thing and not a consumer brand where it's a household name. Uh, so it it depends on how you define things a bit. But brands, I think, are important. Uh, in, we're in the wine business, and we have uh, three brands: Hall, uh, which is Cabernet and Napa uh, Valley centric; Walt, which is Pinot Noir. We have Pinot Noir from uh, Oregon to Santa Barbara, thousand miles of Pinot, we call it and uh, Baca, which is uh, Zinfandel. And each of those brands stand for quality and uh, a certain type of wine. And um, that's very, very important. We work hard at developing and keeping those brands. Mm. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, no, no <laughs> I, I just think that that's so important. We, we educate on brands all the time. And it's funny, I feel like in today's mm-hmm. economy too, even B2B brands almost have to think of themselves a little bit as like lifestyle brands or consumer facing brands, just because of that. People want to do business with people they know, like, and trust. So getting that, that persona and personality and like, what do you actually stand for? And it's funny. I even find myself sometimes, you know, build as, as we build brands and build websites and do all this coaching, I find myself before I even buy a product. Sometimes I want to go do research on that product brand to know what, what do these guys stand for? Um, and I'm sure that's how a lot of, you know, people shop and think of, do I want to spend my money with this brand? Um, and do they stand for the same things I stand for and have those same beliefs? And I think in today's world with, you know, so much noise and so many options, it's, it's incredibly important mm-hmm. to have that, like that belief. Does this brand believe in the same thing I believe in? What am I supporting mm-hmm. more so than it's ever been before? Mm-hmm. I, I think that's a, a Good advice, good and very interesting in a way to look at it. I, I uh, and I think times have changed as you as you somewhat were suggesting. Uh, that's more true today than I I ever uh, remember in my my career. And I like it. I think it's great. I think uh, it's important for uh, any business, just like it is for a consumer, to to know who they're doing business with on the other side and and to feel like it's a, a, a comfortable fit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, well, well said. Not already brands tribe. We are privileged to have Darren and Kirsten here, found co-founders of Cloverleaf. If you are building a team uh, or or have a team, this is an essential piece of software that you guys need to start implementing right away. And we're so privileged to have them here with us to explain why this is crucial to you building or battle brand. We uh, started this company a couple of years ago because we had an awesome experience working on a team with a great culture. And with that, we were able to produce so much more than we ever thought we were capable of. And a lot of people have that experience, an amazing team, one time only if you're lucky. And so with Cloverleaf, we've put a lot of psychology data and calculus together to be able to expose what is it that makes a team great. And so we help you recreate that magical team experience that everybody longs to have. Come on to our product and get started. Whether you're a team of one, it's just you, or you're a team of multiple hundreds, um, we've got really easy ways for you to get started. Just come to cloverleaf.me and get started. And special for our Battle Ready Brands listeners, we have a code to get 30% off. You just type in Battle Ready 30 when you check out. So, so like as, as entrepreneurs, all kind of in pursuit of, you know, a very specific mission, all of us, you know, started a business or we're trying to, to get from here to here mm-hmm. on our, on our journey, you know, sometimes it's easy to get distracted from our mission by things that aren't, aren't crucial and helping us get to the goal. So little things that kind of pull us off track. Um, and so we're curious, you know, how have you been able to differentiate and stay focused on those businesses, projects, or ideas that are worthy to pursue and knowing what, what is, what is a distraction versus, you know, staying focused on your, your mission with all the different businesses you have. Well, first of all, let me, let me uh, say that I a thousand percent agree with your comment. I think one of the more uh, common mistakes that entrepreneurs make is that they look at what I call every shiny new penny. There's so many distractions and so many things that come your way. And I've learned over time, uh, it's hard for me because I like uh, to do new things and I like to uh, listen to ideas and try things. And um, one of the more difficult things is to discipline yourself to 
focus and realize that time is our uh, shortest commodity. You can find money, but you you know you you have a limitation as to how many things you say yes to. I'm not very good at. I, even to this day, I'd say I'm um, much better than I used to be, but it, it's hard to say no to things. And if people can get through my various uh, barriers, uh, um, I'm a real sucker. <laughs> it, it's easy to sell a salesman, I guess. But I no, I I, I, I but I, I to, to your question and to your point. I make a real uh, effort at putting my own guardrails up because I do know that uh, the best way to get somewhere is a straight line. And if you don't focus on your core, mm-hmm. you got to decide. And, that, and we do, for instance, planning meetings every six months where we look at how are we doing? What is our goals? What is our core business? And I'm constantly asking myself, what business are we in? And make sure we're not strained to other things just because they, come our way. So there's a lot of sort of rules of the road that, that are helpful to, to keep on, on the right path. Even though if something may come along, that's just so compelling that you break your rules, but generally it's good to have guardrails and to have rules. That's great. And it sounds like too, like with your, your every uh, six month meetings, having some accountability there with having a team that can help identify, you know, what, what are those pillars and, you know, bouncing those ideas off of, I think as entrepreneurs too, sometimes um, it could be difficult, you know, when you don't have that accountability in place, if you're veering off course, there's no one to really keep you in check of you sure. know, what, what do you stand for and what, what is your mission? What are your goals? So I think it's important for, you know, our, our tribe listening, you know, for creating an enduring brand or personality brand or business, mm-hmm. you know, to, to have that accountability, to have that team around you to publicly state, Hey, these are our goals. Here's, here's the lines we don't cross and here's where we're focused on getting um, mm-hmm. that can hold each other accountable. I mean, in addition to doing it as a group, uh, we also write things down so that we can go back and look and see where we're uh, way off and where we're doing fine. So that's an important factor as well. That's great. So, mm-hmm. so if you guys are taking notes, yep. pull over on the side of the road, this is a very important thing. So accountability is not just, not just talking, but, but, Putting in writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't just put it in, you know, notes on an iPad or iPhone or, or in your head. Or in your head. Yeah. You know, the, all your business plans, like it's so important to have that like in writing somewhere that you can grab that's mm-hmm. tangible and have that accountability. So put mm-hmm. it in writing. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I don't know if you feel this way, Craig, but, but you, you talked a lot in your book about the differences that, you know, the, the different challenges and I guess the different day that we're living in now versus when you started out um, and how things I don't want to say easier. Maybe they were they were just different back when you got started versus today. Do you feel like there's more distractions for entrepreneurs today than ever before, or did you encounter the same ones when you were young? I think distractions are not uh, particularly dramatically different. Uh, what's different today is that it, it, it's it's kind of a um, uh, an odd juxtaposition, two things. On the one hand, entrepreneurship is more popular and there's more uh, people supporting it and private sector interest in it. On the other hand, um, it was easier uh, 50 years ago to start a business than it is today. And in fact, over the last few decades, we've been starting fewer businesses, even though there's more um, celebration of, of the entrepreneurial spirit it's it's still the numbers show that it's uh, actually shrinking in in uh, effectiveness and part of the reason for that I think is that we've been in a period of great consolidation as a country where businesses are um, getting more and more controlled by fewer players and that's a, a trend that I think is not good for our country and not good for uh, individual opportunity and not good for um, really the the fundamentals that uh, the American dream are based on. Yeah. That, I, I want to unpack that a little bit um, because I, I think there are two views on this um, reality of what's kind of happening in, in the startup world today, where, you know, you have um, maybe startup accelerators where they're essentially providing an environment for big companies to, um, to, to buy the early adopters of these you know, innovative startup companies. Is, is that good or bad? You know, wh- what are the long-term effects of, big corporate versus startups in a, in a partnership, how do they coexist? How do we, how do we, you know, maneuver that? 
Yeah, I, I th- great, great uh, uh, questions. I, first of all, I'm not against big. I, I, I maybe sound like it. What I'm against is big uh, kind of being predators or big not uh, allowing opportunities for new and, and small. And so I just think the playing field is, is too, at a political level and a policy level, it's too much in favor of big. As far as big guys helping buy startups and, and, and so on, I, I don't have a particular problem with that. Um, I think it'd be nicer to have a path where startups could feel good about staying independent, but I, I, I don't think it should be by regulation or any anything like that. I, I just think there should be policies that encourage more capital to come to smaller startups uh, that give them more freedom and flexibility. I think we should look at how we can have fewer regulations that make it difficult for smaller companies and generally level the playing field. And I think that has to be done at a lot of it at the federal policy level. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So go yeah. out there and vote. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's more than just vote. The problem is um, we need to educate the elected officials to even understand this issue because I can't say it's the Republicans and the Democrats that are our friends. I think that uh, mm-hmm. uh, neither party is really, they talk around entrepreneurship, but neither party really um, does a lot to help entrepreneurs. And uh, I, I'm making it a little bit of a mission to try to help change that. Um, yeah. But, but I, and I, I think part of the reason they don't is not many of them have been entrepreneurs. Yeah. Um, I know in your book, you touch a lot on, you know, tech startups and how they're, they're kind of hogging the, a lot of the resources and stealing a lot of the limelight. For those that are listening that maybe have a business or are thinking of starting a business that isn't tech related, should this should this be a scare to them? Should we be telling them to focus on tech or where can we direct them so that they have a shot? Well, first of all, uh, the first thing I say in the book uh, and, and the worry I had is, uh, you know, on the one hand, I'm talking about how difficult it is, but I sure don't want to scare anyone away. I, I think it's not... Uh, it's more difficult than I would like it to be. And, and part of the book is intended to shine a light on those problems, but that, that, that as to the entrepreneur, it's not to say, don't do it because uh, there's ways as a uh, person with a passion for any idea, there's ways of getting things done. Our, it's not, we don't live in a, uh, a country that is closed to entrepreneurship. We just live in a country that should be a little bit, more flexible than it is. But that said, what I do say about tech is, is that that's where the money's going. And, you know, if, if you look at a few geographic areas, Silicon Valley, New York, Boston, either biotech uh, or, or technology in general, uh, that's where a lot of innovation is. And it's understandable because people who have money want to hit a home run. They'd rather uh, make a huge return than make a modest return. Um, can't blame either side for that. And and that, you know, if I was an entrepreneur that was uh, in my 20s or 30s and understood technology, um, you know, I'd move to Silicon Valley and go hang out and get it done. And and I I'm convinced there's something in the water there. Those people, I, I have <laughs> friends in Silicon Valley. When you talk to them, they think different. I think it's because of the water. They they, yeah. they or maybe they're just on your wine over there. Yeah, that must be our wine. Maybe they're drinking our wine. <laughs> That's great. Well, if you're a 20 or 30 year old entrepreneur, take take advice here from Craig Hall and move to Silicon Valley and hey, drink great. some of the drink water. Wine. Yeah, <laughs> some of the wine. That's right. No, the only other thing is, if you're at any age entrepreneur, I have I have general advice, which is don't don't use excuses not to try it. Don't if you got a passion, you got an idea, jump in, because there's there's plenty of room for uh, every you can get through the problems. There are problems, but there's plenty of uh, opportunity too. Sure. And I think that's defined a lot of your own journey itself. It's not that, you know, you had everything perfectly planned. You knew all of the answers. Uh, I, I'm going to step out on a limb here and say that I think the things that you've been most successful at have been things that you've been most passionate about. Yeah, I, I passion's everything. And, 
um, your passion and um, and kind of feeling like you're on a mission that you really believe has a lot more to do with things than money. If you, if you're an entrepreneur who is in it for the money, you're kind of a not so likely to succeed and be just, you know, I got trouble talking to you. I mean, <laughs> you, you need to really want to do something and, and make a difference and make, make waves. And that, that's, that's, what's fun. That's, that's good, man. Some amazing takeaways. So you guys that are listening, take so you didn't even hear my worst story. Didn't you want to hear about, um, uh, you're going to run out of time. You, you want to hear about uh, tough times, right? Oh yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, the open mic. Go right ahead. <laughs> all right, all right. So, all right. I'm going to give you the toughest of tough times. Give it to uh, yeah, we'll we'll have to see if you have a, uh, a, a in your future uh, podcast can find anyone to beat beat this one. Ooh, it sounds oh, like a challenge. Sounds like a challenge. This is all this right. is a challenge. So, in the um, early 1980s, back in the dark ages, real estate was booming. And we were building properties all over the United States. We being real estate industry. And my company became the largest owner, uh, second largest owner in the world of apartments. Now today, um, what we owned then, it was 72,000 apartments. Over time, we owned 100,000 and bought and sold. But at one time, we had 72,000 apartments, which today, there are big public companies that have more than that. But in those days, we were a private company. Um, we had a lot of investors in each uh, different apartment building. And um, we, we moved our headquarters from Michigan to Dallas. Um, we, were, uh, we had a few billion dollars. Uh, today, it's, you know, numbers have changed, but we had a few billion dollars in, in debt. Uh, and we were in a number of places, uh, the largest borrowers in the savings loan industry, we were, we were very large borrowers. Mm. Um, in 1985, I realized that the uh, properties were losing money and that many people had built and were, there were all over the country, there were lots of apartment buildings under construction, even when they weren't needed. And there was a view in real estate that prices would always go up and inflation was always going to bail everybody out. And so there's this overbuilding, I thought we're starting to go down. And then in 1986, the federal government passed the Tax Reform Act, which retroactively for the first time in history changed the tax laws. Now you put all that together hmm. and basically you had in the uh, limited partnership syndication tax area, which we were the largest people doing that, basically so many people I know went out of business and I've never seen them again. And many other people went to jail because a lot of people not only um, were aggressive in business, but they got too aggressive. Fortunately, uh, not, not fortunately, that's a number one thing for everybody. We, we, you need to keep your integrity and you need to, Money can come and go, but you need to, to start to finish, not ever sacrifice your values. So because of that, I'm still here. Um, but anyway, starting in 1986, because I'm always open guy, I, I had all kinds of bad publicity. Like this guy, I announced to my investors and then it got in the newspapers and then Instead of saying no comment, I commented. Uh, and, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, they, they they gave up on me. Um, but but we had just huge financial problems uh, and got into lots of um, workouts and negotiations. And today, if that was happening, the the banking system would uh, they've learned that it's better to work with a big troubled borrower than it is to. Uh, crush them. But o o over time, the U.S. government, um, in part, it's complicated, it's very complicated, but but in part because uh, uh, George H.W. Bush was the president and his son, one of his sons was on the board of Silverado Savings. And I think the administration felt a little hamstrung because they were getting political heat. Long story short, 
everything's going broke. We're in the banking savings loan and we're the largest department owner. So we're, we get in financial trouble like you can't believe. And it starts in late 85, 86, and it goes on into the 1990s. Um, and it's so complicated. I can't, I can't go into all of it, except I can say this much. I did end up not because of money. That's also complicated. Um, uh, in 1986, I had far more uh, financial problems and far uh, greater um, uh, personal liability than I did in 1992. But in 1992, through a very uh, new law, I was pushed into a personal Chapter 11 bankruptcy by the uh, by a federal agency. Uh, called the Resolution Trust Corporation. Mm. And, well, can you just like maybe give us an idea of like what kind of what kind of debt were we talking here? You know, when you're about to declare bankruptcy. Well, it's it's very complicated in the sense I controlled about two and a half billion of debt, but personally, which is how I filed, I was down to a very small amount, about thirty million. When I when when I got in trouble, I had personal debts of about one hundred ninety million. And a little over the two and a half billion of, of related affiliated partnerships and corporations, but I controlled all the other stuff, and it was the partnerships and corporations that, that I controlled that, under a new law, the government was seeking to put pressure on me. Um, uh, long, long story, but anyway, that's the short. The short version is, they they did put pressure on me, and there were a lot of politics involved in this, but but that. So it's all history. I, but in the worst of times, I think one of the questions you're asking is kind of the worst of times. Mm-hmm. So in the worst of times, I'm, there's some personalities on the other side, and they there were reasons that people uh, in in the positions uh, wanted to kind of get me and wanted to really um, kind of uh, put me in a position where I would never come back and be on a podcast with you guys. But anyway. <laughs> Uh, you so were going to take you out. Yeah, yeah they were going to take me out. And um, uh, so at one point, I'm negotiating with the devil here, and I'm negotiating a, a deal, the highest risk deal of my life. So the deal I made was that while I was in bankruptcy, I would raise and pay them $102,500,000 in cash within 90 days. Wow. Or... I would agree to give up all my assets, sign a non-disclosed, sign a, a big judgment, and basically never, never, uh, just be a, a slave forever. And, <laughs> and everybody in my orbit, except for my now wife, uh, who is a lawyer, and two or three of my lawyers. Hmm. Agreed, but everybody, you know, it was like nine out of 10 people thought I was an idiot. And that's actually more like 9.9. But anyway, it's okay. (laughs) It's the same odds as normal. And, and, you know, long story short. So then right after that, I had kidney stones. So I'm about to, you know, I'm supposed to go out and look for 102 million, 500,000. And they were nasty. That that, that took a, so now I don't have 90 days anymore. So I, I lost the first couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I go to the hospital. Literally at the closing, the source that I found for most of the money wasn't uh, uh, literally the wire that the deadline came down to the minute, and the wire hadn't gone through. And oh, and I, I I I I we they gave me an extra three minutes, and <laughs> three minutes the wire went through, and and uh, here I am. I'm still here. Unreal. Wow. So, yeah. It, one it, of the people on the other side, one of the people on the other side who came back to me about a year later and tried to uh, get a job here and, and, and said, Hey, you know, don't hope you don't have any hard feelings. <laughs> yeah, no, okay. I've gotten over hard feelings. Yeah. So, so I think for people to listen, like imagining that challenge, like if you had to pick between the two, right, you have 90 days to raise, was it like 510 million? 102 million cash. Um, from bankruptcy and having no money. It was like, I had no money. I was so broke. Yeah. So talk about like, you know, the, the kind of easy way out, right? It's like, Hey, I'm just going to 
I'm just going to sign my life off and disappear. And well, actually, actually before that, I could have, I could have taken the easy way out and other, uh, you know, you're right. There were a lot of easy outs along the way. Sure. Uh, I never, I mean, I looked at it this way. I had investors who counted on me. Mm-hmm. I had banks who counted on me. The federal government ended up taking it. So the reason I was doing the federal government is they took over so many banks and SNLs. This was a real depression. And, and you know, looking back, I have absolutely no animosity or regrets. And I don't feel like anyone did me, uh, 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 you know, little ways I was mistreated. But I don't want to come off complaining because the truth is, I got myself into that position mm. and you know uh, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. I, uh, I borrowed the money uh, and you know, you have to understand how to pay it back. And I, but I always stood tall and I didn't um, walk away from anything. And I'm to this day, I'm proud of it. And now what I want to do is try to, I'm a different financially and otherwise in my life. If we went through a similar economic time, I would, do everything I could to be on the government side to make sure that our country, what, what they did in those days is they uh, wasn't really good for the economy. It cost the taxpayers a lot of money. They, they didn't handle it in the best way. So yeah, it hurt, hurt me, but I'm, that's the least of the, that's a short-term thinking. I mean, I, I gotta ask, there's just, my mind is kind of blown. I'm ruining your time schedule. No, you're, no, I mean, like, I, I just kind of want to unpack a little bit because, you know, there's, as entrepreneurs, hey, we go through setbacks. You know, this is the point of the show. We want to talk about the, the ugly. But when you're talking about that much money and you're talking about all of the, the stress, I mean, not just temporary stress. I mean, you went through years of right. going to sleep, waking up. Is it, has anything changed? No, it's still the same. I, I mean, this kind of stuff ruins people. If, if they either get bitter, they get angry, they get cynical, they lose friends, they maybe turn to drugs. I mean, their family falls apart, they crumble. I mean, you still have hair, and not just like <laughs> little. I mean, your hair looks great. I'm a little jealous. He's, he's thriving. He's, yeah, he's, he's, yeah. He's got that thriving life. I talked about at the beginning. Like, but this is the point of the of the show: is battle ready brands. Like, we want people to understand what does it mean to be battle ready to endure. Like, Craig. What was going through your mind? Like, how did you how did you make it through this? Well, well, first of all, um, I to the physical aspect, there were I'd say for quite a number of years, like five, six, seven years, I slept two or three hours uh, a night and woke up with sweat, and my bed was just wet, like somebody like it rained in there because I was I was under immense stress and. what kept me going? I've, I've thought about it in hindsight. I always believed that I'd come out the other end. There were a couple of times where I really doubted it, but in general, uh, on balance, I always believed that right wins and that if you just treat people fairly and keep your head down and do what's right. And, you know, I had at one point 500 lawsuits. Can you imagine that? 500 lawsuits at one point. At one time? Yeah, at one time. Wow. And well, I had 250 at one time. Yeah, like, you know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I mean, um, no question. I like thinking about it and looking back on it than I enjoyed it at the time. I didn't enjoy it at all. <laughs> and, but I never, I, I started to say, I never thought of quitting or taking easy ways out. I did once, but I, I mean, I, I, I had some really rough moments, but yeah. um, on balance, I believed in myself and I believe in our system and our country. And I still do. I, 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 um, I feel like I'm a real grateful guy. I don't have any bitterness and you're right. I think it does affect people in different ways, but I look back and just feel, um, grateful. I've had a, I, I feel grateful for having that opportunity. And that's kind of what motivates me for, for like writing the book and for trying to uh, talk to people about um, making, making sure the system has kind of a, a, a fairness and, and a policy that yeah. is about young smart startup guys, young companies, rather than just 
the, the ones that have already made it. Yeah. And, and I've got to think, and we don't have time to, to fully unpack this, but there's, you guys all need to go out and, and buy this book. There's yeah. a really good section about mm-hmm. unintended, unintended consequences. Um, and Craig, you talked about when you were, you were 21 and you kind of mentioned this at the beginning um, when you started to, to collect money from your University of Michigan classmates to get your second property. And then you went on to getting 35 to 40 other partnerships and just kind of going gangbusters, just growing and, you know, thought this is the way you're supposed to do things. And then you get that call from the Michigan Department of Commerce. Right. And kind of a, a scary call. Like, and that was just part of this title. I think it was twice that long. <laughs> exactly. um, but yep. It sounded like he, he had all the power to, if he wanted to like lock you up or put you away or shut you down. Yeah, I could. I, I mean, I, I was doing things totally wrong. I didn't know it, but I guess it's my fault that I didn't know it. So I, yeah, I, I was civilly and criminally could have been in trouble, but in those days, this particular guy, he was more interested in, in the future than he was. He knew I was just a, a not too bright of a kid that was <laughs> messing up. I didn't have enough money for a good lawyer, but, but I, I did at that point, I had to find it. But, but you're right today. I worry that maybe people would lock somebody up first and then ask questions later. Yeah. Um, but, but I've got to think too, that that experience maybe kind of shaped, you know, the way, the way that you think too, of like this persistence of, Hey, there, there's still some good people out there and like wanting to help others like that had to have shaped or formed um, part of your entrepreneurship during that stage of having someone that was actually on your side and then, and then becoming friends with the department. Absolutely. Um, a much different story. <laughs> yeah, no, I, and I, I think most entrepreneurs, at least in my case, I've found a number of um, people along my journey that have been very helpful. I mean, there are good people in this country that want to see people succeed. And um, like the two of you are doing just by what you're doing is very helpful to people. And, um, and that's great. Uh, And, you know, it's, we do have a, an overall, a really great country. We just need to keep it that way. And we need to keep it that way for as many people as possible. Mm-hmm. Hey, where, where do you draw your inspiration? I'm curious. Like if, if you were to say, you know, these people helped shape me and mold me into who I am today, who would be some of those people that you've looked up to in the past or even now today? That's a great question. I, um, um, you know, I don't have a, a, a super immediate answer. When I was first starting, there was a guy who had wrote a book called, his name was William Nickerson. He wrote a book called how I turned a thousand dollars into a million. And then he wrote a second book, how he turned a thousand dollars into 3 million. So I thought I, that, that was uh, a, a, at the moment, uh, a little bit inspirational. Uh, uh, Maybe you could write the follow-up, how I turned a million into a thousand. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I could, I could write that one. I'll tell you a quick story about another guy that was, was similar. There was a guy named William. Uh, uh, I don't know. I think it's, no, William Zeckendorf. William Zeckendorf was a huge real estate player in the 60s and 70s. And then he, uh, he went bankrupt and then he came back. And so I thought, wow, interesting guy. Now I'm in my early 20s at this point and he's coming to give a lunch speech at a hotel near where my office was. What a great opportunity. So he's on his comeback. He's already through his bankruptcy. And he's the one, for instance, the United Nations is in New York because he put it there. He, he built the building and made that deal. So he's a really, you know, interesting guy. So I go to this luncheon and he's now 65, 66 years old on his comeback. And the whole speech, I'm, I'm 22, 21, 23, and I'm there to learn the secret. How, how can I, you know, get rich overnight and, uh, you know, live on a beach. Yeah, exactly. I, I just want the secret. <laughs> and, and he spends the entire time talking about the benefit and how great artwork is. And I thought to myself, Oh my God, I want my $25 back for, for lunch. <laughs> and I thought, you know, that's just terrible. I, and I had been collecting posters. My mother was an artist and today we have art in all our projects. I love art. It wasn't that I didn't love art, but I just felt cheated, you know, and, and I left that lunch being pretty burned and upset. 
And years later, I realized that I learned a lot from that as well, because what he was talking about is it's sort of the, the, the what affects your soul and what affects kind of the bigger pictures of the world are really what's important. And, uh, you know, uh, tactics for getting through a, a business situation are less important than kind of making a difference. And uh, so that was a lots of lessons along the way. Yeah. Is he still giving seminars? Maybe we should sign up. I think, I think he's long gone. Oh. Take his online class. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> his, son, his, his son is now in the business, so maybe you could uh, check that out. We need to set him up with a website. We, we maybe do. a sales funnel or something. There you go. <laughs> yeah, speaking of sons, we put this coffee mug out for you. My, my 10-year-old son just got me this for my birthday. It's, uh, it says, I can and I will. So it's this, this awesome. giant-sized, oversized coffee mug. We were like, you know, Craig would probably appreciate the yeah, sentiment, cool. uh, <laughs> determination of the mug. Absolutely. So it's a fun so, since we're uh, running a little bit short on time, we're going to go ahead and go to what we call the knockout rounds. We're going to ask you a series of questions. So we've got, uh, I think, nine rounds, and we want you to give us an answer. So it's going to yeah. So we just pit, you know, two brands against each other, and you get to decide who the winner is and tell us why. So first, we've got um, we we hear you're a vegan. First, is that true? Uh, I I was for 17 years. Now I eat a little bit of fish. Okay, and I'm still a vegan. Otherwise, no dairy, no one. Yeah. We we won't tell the fish. No. <laughs> <laughs> so so. Uh, Whole Foods or Trader Joe's? Uh, Trader Joe's. Trader Joe's, all right. So round two, we've got Grey Goose or Smirnoff? Oh, Grey Goose. There you go. Too often. (laughs) (laughs) That's really what's in that mug. We just didn't tell anybody. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Wait, is it? No, that's Uh, not Trader Joe's. Sorry. Just a protein bar. (laughs) That's weird. Uh, So round three, we've got your your wine. So the cab, the the soft. Sauvignon Blanc? Sauvignon Blanc or the Merlot? Well, they're all my children. I, you know, uh, the cab. The cab. Oh, the okay. cab. Okay. <laughs> and and are, you, are you good enough to be able to distinguish the subtle notes in all of those wines? No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I believe wine should be enjoyed, not, not uh, dissected to, to yeah, death. Mm. That should be the headline of this podcast. What changed the name? Yes, it should be enjoyed, <laughs> not dissected. Okay, round four. Favorite piece of tech? We know you're an Apple guy, so iPhone or iPad? Uh, iPhone. There you go. All right. Uh-huh. Round five. So favorite movie? Godfather one, two, or three? Godfather one. There you go. Any any specific reason why? Um, actually, I liked them all. They were all great. No, but <laughs> one one got it going. No, they were all great. Yeah. I mean, you got to give it to the classic. I it at all. I'm going to have to go home and watch it tonight. Yeah. It's after the kids are in bed, though, of course. <laughs> you don't let your kids watch that? Uh, not always. <laughs> all right. Round number six, we have favorite entrepreneur, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, or Mark Zuckerberg? I know. It's it's a Royal Rumble. That's hard. That's hard. I, I, I think um, Bill Gates. There you go. What? Yeah. What? What do you think? Why Bill Gates? I, I like I like his second life. I like the fact that he's uh, he's been able to both be successful at Microsoft and then move on to really uh, what I think he'll change the world and what he's doing now with uh, his wife and all yeah. the foundation. Their foundation is incredible. It's cool. It's awesome. It's really awesome. On family and wealth and everything too. It's pretty. Yes. Pretty above bar. It's amazing. Yep. Great. All right. All right. Round seven. So we're gonna do battle of the fitness brands since you're a CrossFit guy. So Nike or Under Armour? Nike. All right. What kind of shoes do you run in or train in? Uh, I don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> what size shoe do you wear? Not sure of that one either. I think ten something. <laughs> well, ask we'll your wife. I buy well, I buy those things every ten years, whether I need it or not. Did you say you buy a pair of shoes every ten years? Oh, all my clothes, all those things. I don't, I, I, I don't do that stuff. Man, Brad, he buys like a pair of the other day. I, I know it's it's my weak spot. I would say like every every couple months maybe, but no, I need I need to take some life lessons from Craig. Yeah, you, you yeah. guys need to train together. <laughs> <laughs> all 
Okay, round eight. So this this isn't a battle of brands, but philosophy. So kind of curiosity. Um, is it better to ask for permission or ask for forgiveness? Oh, ask for forgiveness. There you go. There you go. <laughs> sure, that's not even close. <laughs> I don't think you can. I don't think they let you into the entrepreneurial uh, front row if you don't that's have true. that. That's yeah. like a qualifying question. That, that is. is qualifying. Yeah. That's right. Okay, last round, round number nine. The exercise that you hate the most: burpees or push-ups? Oh, that's another one. That was not even close. Burpees. Yeah. Oh yes, the absolutely. I do, I do a lot of them though. <laughs> oh man, you know. Wait. Well, I was going to say, so when, when me and Matt do spark race, we were just out in Colorado doing one in like 90 degree heat and an army base, Desert. eight miles was intense. But so the spark race is interesting. So every obstacle you miss, I think there's 30 obstacles in some, yeah, in some distances. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So you have to do 30 burpees for every single obstacle you miss. That's the way it should be. Yeah. So Matt made it do all of them. I just missed the last one because, you know, my... So how many burpees did, did uh, each of you end up doing? I, you know, we split Brad's last 30 and a half. So I did, <laughs> I did 15 for him and he did 50. Yeah, we, we were so tired and my hands were bleeding from a rope climb. You I know, just couldn't do the monkey bars. He was, he was about in tears crying over peeled skin. And, <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't get it. I mean, I tried it three times, but I, I finally gave up. But Matt, Matt came uh, alongside and helped me with the burpees. You know, so they, you know, there were just some that kind of lagged behind. <laughs> Come with us to this to a Spartan race. Maybe you know we'll we'll help you out some burpees too if you miss an obstacle. That's right. Yeah, good, good deal. Now, I, my my uh, uh, my burpees have been videoed as as some of the worst burpees ever ever attempted. Uh, I, I I could uh, I could lose any burpee contest. Man, that's awesome. Yeah, it's great. You should post that on YouTube. It might go viral. Yeah, <laughs> that's. That's a little scary thought. <laughs> Maybe we'll do some B-roll on this episode and cut the some shots. <laughs> Not too likely. Craig, thank you so much for uh, investing time with us. Where, where can people learn more about you if they want to, you know, obviously we've got the book here. Um, tell yep. us, tell us where people can, can follow you, how they can learn more about you. Actually, I just recently have gone on uh, various social media, Craig Hall uh, uh, and, uh, or hallgroup.com. There you go. Out of Dallas. Great. Yes. And, and uh, we'll be doing a book giveaway uh, for those that are listening to this episode as well. Craig's been so kind to give us a book. So we'll put the information of that all packaged in the episode. And uh, man, this was just uh, a treat. I, I really am thankful for your time and for Craig, for you jumping on with us in this podcast. It's, it's been my pleasure. I enjoyed it a lot. And uh, good luck with uh, your program. It's great. <laughs>